This episode is brought to you by Light Dawning by Ty Arthur, the grimdark fantasy novel available now on Amazon Kindle Unlimited. The once great city of Cestia has become a home for the damned. Under the brutal occupation of the Southern Empire, the surviving populace have lost any hope of liberation and turn towards a desperate rebellion willing to commit any atrocity for a chance at freedom. As war approaches, four lost souls trapped behind Cestia's walls are on a collision course with fate. Will they save the once great city, or see it destroyed by forces beyond mankind's comprehension? For good or ill, the light of a new day is dawning. Light Dawning by Ty Arthur the grimdark fantasy novel available now on Amazon Kindle ebook or paperback, or read for free with Kindle Unlimited. This isn't your typical fantasy. This is dark and brutal fantasy that draws on cosmic horror and the bleak corners of human existence. Need your next grimdark fix? Look no further. Light Dawning by Ty Arthur. Pick up your copy today. Archivos the new story development application from WonderThing Studios will change the way you look at stories. Archivos takes a different approach to documenting your story setting. While most wikis and storytelling frameworks focus on documenting the elements of your stories, Archivos is more interested in the connections between those story elements. It's the relationships between characters and places and events that express the true structure and allure of your stories. As a storyteller, that's the awareness you need to strengthen and refine the crafting of your stories. Archivos really is the story development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyard. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward Hi, I'm Timely Count Myers, the author of The Song of All, and you're listening to The Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest is a writer, artist, independent historian, and surfer, born in Mexico and shipped off to the tennis courts of Southern California with a prophecy over her head that one day she'd be an author. Her debut fantasy novel, The Song of All, dropped February 20th from Nightshade Books. Skyping in today from San Francisco, the Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Tina LeCount Myers to the show. Tina, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really am excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to uh, have you this morning. It's 8 a.m., 8.15, bright and early here on the West Coast, so we do appreciate you for joining us and caffeinating and uh, getting up at this early hour. We do love to talk to debut authors on the show. 2017 was an incredible year for debuts. No doubt 2018 will be as well, and we'd like to be the first podcast for these folks to drop by and help spread the word of their cool new fantasy books and continue to wreck people's TBR piles on a bi-weekly basis here on the podcast. How has the first month gone since the book dropped? It's been incredibly hectic and overwhelming and uh, hard to process. Really? Uh, a lot a lot going on all at once, um, in addition to having the second book due in about a month. So I'm on my toes pretty much every day with something new, some new challenge. So it's been wild. Not what you expected, I presume, when you uh, first signed your contract with your publisher, etc.? <laughs> I'm not sure what I expected, but um, the pressure is definitely on to produce um, a lot of new material for publicity. And I think that that part, I wasn't I didn't have a full grasp of what that was really going to entail. So it's been a it's been a great, intense learning curve for sure. 
Well, you just had to go write a fantastic fantasy novel, so it's kind of your fault. <laughs> what do you think about it? I know. I did it to myself. Right? I can blame <laughs> nobody but myself on this one. You're to blame, Tino the Count Myers. So let's talk about uh, your book a little bit. Uh, figure it's the appropriate venue to do so. The Song of All dropped from Nightshade Books, February 20th. Uh, tell us a little bit about your debut novel and maybe why you think uh, folks should pick up a copy. Um, so the Song of All is about, it's set in the Arctic tundra. It's, it's largely Samiland, um, which is, um, the northern part of Scandinavia, but it could also contain, you know, contain, uh, the first world nations of any Arctic area. There is overlapping, um, similarities, but it's about two warring tribes set in this Arctic tundra and, um, the flawed man caught in the middle who's trying to save his son. And uh, it's a equal parts um, a family story and a story of violence as well. Yuyan is a killer. I mean, that's that's what he was trained to do. That's what he's done most of his life. But um, he essentially has a midlife crisis, um, which for a killer uh, could be an interesting moment, um, which you get to you don't get to see in the book. It's a more a little more off screen, and it may show up in a secondary novella. Not quite sure yet. But Iran's basically tired of what he's been doing, which is killing immortals. And um, he wants to have a normal life. He wants to have a family. He wants to belong to society. And that's what he tries to do. And flawed characters are always interesting to me because I think we're essentially all flawed, flawed characters. We have our great honorable moments and then we have our, you know, shitty side as well. And I was interested to look at that type of character, um, particularly in the role of a father, uh, which doesn't always get a lot of attention in terms of that role. So those are some of the things you can look at, Ideon, both uh, killer, father, the nexus in between, and how we all kind of go through life, trying to do the best we can. I assume the person on the cover is is Ideon carrying the uh, <laughs> blade and having blood <laughs> trailing behind him. Yeah, that's um, that's um, that's Ideon. That's Jeff Chapman's um, vision. He's the artist. Uh, Jeff Chapman and Sean King uh, are the artists for the cover. So yeah, that is that is how they envisioned Irian. Um, and the bloody footprints became more and more prominent based on my editor. Jeremy Lassen was like, more blood, more blood, more blood. <laughs> so <laughs> there is more blood. Uh, Definitely more blood. He's a man after our heart here. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Grim <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right? You guys are you guys are some tough action fellows so i'm like my cover represents the bloody side of things for sure would you say there is a fair amount of blood spilled in the book is it uh, you mentioned it's a violent story would you consider it to be not gory but graphic in any realm i mean i I think it's graphic light there's a, a lot of uh sword fights and people getting disemboweled and and there's blood but um it's not gratuitous it's all it all has a role to play that the blood has a the violence have a have a role to play in it but um there's a lot there's a lot but i i don't think it's gratuitous i mean i'm trying to think of anything in there like going back through the that fight saying you know but there's some disemboweling and you know it's getting cut off and you know we like disemboweling yeah (laughs) we're fans we're fans of the (laughs) disemboweling the the title of the podcast would suggest that so (laughs) indeed it, it does it does happen it happens uh, throughout the series, but it, it, there's a counterpoint theme in that. What do you do when violence doesn't work anymore? Dance. And how <laughs> dance exactly? <laughs> you can go on dancing with the stars, pretty much. <laughs> um, and I would argue that a lot of sword fights and sword play has a lot of dance aspects to it. So footwork is important there. So you may transition easier as uh, a killer into the dance world. So that could happen. But uh, yeah, no, it's the counterpoint too. you know, what do you do um, when it's not working for you that you don't want it to work for you and you just can't quite get out of it. And what, what does the title refer to the song of all? Could you tell us what that means uh, without spoiling the whole series? Yeah, I can talk about it in terms of the science aspect of what that really means. The song of all represent uh, looking at sort of uh, sound theory and vibration and the fact that most of what we're discovering in kind of physics is that there we're all vibrating. There's a vibration for everything. And the idea being that the song of all is all of those vibrations put together into what turns out to be a unified chorus or a symphony and that we each have a part in it. So I think that explains it without giving away anything. Oh, very intriguing. 
I'm not sure. If I, gave, I don't think I gave away anything, but I don't know if I explained it enough either. So. I think that was I think that was perfect. I think that would definitely okay. intrigue our listeners for sure. Now, your, your use of language is unique, and I got to be the first one to uh, mispronounce the uh, the name. Uh, so I'm sure a couple of times for through the podcast, oh. I might say something uh, wrong. Oh, okay. uh, so no, apologies. Don't, don't please, I mean, don't worry about that. I mean, however you read something, that's how it's going to be in your mind, and there is no right and wrong. I mean, it is an actual language. This is. I use a number of Sami dialects, which are the um, indigenous um, people of northern Scandinavia. But, uh, you know, and there is a pronunciation, but I'm not a stickler for it because we all read things how we read them. And that's how they stick in our minds. So don't worry about that. Well, then let's dive in and talk about the elves a little bit um, or the Yap Mahatun. Did I say that? Great. Yes. Yap Mahatun. Yeah, yep, I'm going to say yep, yes to each one of you. I know it's it's a mouthful. And if I, somebody asked me at a at a signing recently if I had any regrets and I'm like, yeah, I kind of regret using that word. I really kind of regret it because it's it's a challenging word, but it, it means immortal. So hmm. I was I went with something that has true meaning. And well, there you go. But now it's like, oof, boy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. How are they different than standard elves and that we would see like, uh, you know, like, uh, what's the g- fucking guy's name from Lord of the Rings? Laura, Elrond. Laura, 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 Laura. <laughs> well, there's Elrond and Galadriel and Legolas. Legolas. Legolas yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> what's the difference um that's that's awesome um they're not technically immortal uh it's maybe a giveaway but technically they're not immortal they don't live forever they're essentially me looking at what evolutionary biology could produce coming from an argument with my husband about where's the where's the dividing line between science fiction and fantasy and you know his point was well science fiction is based in science and fantasy is magic and such. And I'm like, well, you know, what about um, particle physics and quantum physics and dark matter, dark energy? And he's like, yeah, that is fine, but there are no elves. And I'm like, yeah, but there could be. And evolutionary biology shows us that all kinds of crazy things can happen, not only to the human species, but to any kind of species. So that's where I was trying to look at something elf-like, but not actually being elf in the terms of Tolkien or um, the derivatives of Tolkien. Um, so they have a long lifespan um, and they change genders in their lifespan. Um, and so that's essentially how they are different from Legolas or Galadriel or Elrond or any of the other beautiful creations that are in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That's intriguing. Now, can they just like switch back and forth at will or how does that work out? No, it, it, uh, there are species that can actually do that. Um, it's called sequential hermaphrodism. Um, and then there are some species uh, in the fish world that can uh, choose to go either way. Um, this is, and so there is sequential hermaphrodism. It's what it's called in my book, uh, but it is not at will. It's part of a, a life process. So they start female, they go through birth, they transition to becoming male, and they spend the rest of the latter half of their life as, as male. You said in the blog post I read that it hasn't been proved yet that elves uh, are real or not. If, if elves were real, how do you think they would have factored into our own history? Do you think uh, the world would be different in a good way or a bad way if elves really did exist? I think with it, like with any species, um, they have the potential to have a positive impact. One would think that with a long lifespan, and that's kind of what I was looking, trying to look at was, well, what would be the benefit of having this long lifespan? Um, there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's also a lot of boredom in that. And just recently I was watching Altered Carbon, and I'm not sure if you if you guys have watched Altered Carbon, but part of the premise is that these people are humans are now living can live, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through, you know, different their consciousness are kept alive and it's just a different body and what that can do. And, and it got really ugly really quickly. And I, so I think that there's a potential for both great wisdom and um, the perils of boredom and having seen it all and done it all. They're problematic. I don't know that they make the world a better place. I don't think that elves are necessarily a positive influence. I mean, I think I wrote it a little positive, but 
there's a prequel and um, they're not so positive in that prequel. Yeah, I think it's like even us as humans now, I think we get bored easily. So like if I could live to be 2000 years old, I think I'd be bored as shit. probably. <laughs> right. Be like, eh. you know, it's like, yeah. And what do you what do you what do you do then? Check out. Is it drugs? Is it, you know, yeah, drugs. Some, that's what yeah. I would do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was trying to look at that. What does that mean if we have these really extended life life experiences? You know, we're all kind of trying to be like, you know, we, we praise people who make it to 100 or, you know, plus years. And it's amazing. But, you know, what does quality of life look like? And if you extend that to two, three, four hundred years, what does that look like? And I'll kind of offset it because they do change genders so that there is a sense of having a different experience through that. But it may or may not be enough to counteract that boredom. Yeah, we see a continuing role of religion continues to be kind of prominent, I'm seeing, at least in Grimdark and, and fantasy. Um, in your work, uh, religion is, is definitely a play. What influences did you draw from in world building your religious system for the Song of All? Well, I, I was looking at the native, some sort of Sami pantheon, what their sort of mythology was, as well as sort of early kind of Finnish, because that's my background, um, like the Kalevala and sort of these mythos of creation. Um, those are really interesting to me, how we conceptualize and, and the Native American kind of conceptualizations of where do we come from being much different from sort of Judeo-Christian myth- mythoses of where we come from. And religion continues to be incredibly important because it's um, still an important part of our lives. Um, I kind of obscure it. I don't talk about any one God. I don't give them names. I let people kind of fill in those gaps and what they, they feel that should look like. But it's contentious. It's ready-made conflict. Um, it's something we're still dealing with. How do we understand our position in the world? Who are we? Um, and I think that's going to continue regardless of whether there's uh, growing movement towards secularization or, um, you know, atheism. We still have to, to figure out who we are in this world. So since the series is called The Legacy of the Heavens, I presume those celestial elements will continue to play a role in the series. They do continue to play a role as organized religion, particularly gets more codified um, in books two and three. I'm skewed. I mean, that there's definitely organized religion is problematic to me. And so I write it that way. But there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good that can come out of organized religion. It's just in in my context, I'm using it for a foil. So um, it tends to get a badder rap, I think, with readers potentially in my book. I hope I don't insult anybody by that. But there it is. Well, you, you use science a lot, and that's something you mentioned before. How in depth do you go uh, when it comes to world building? When you're using science, do you just look at the anatomy of of creatures or people in the world, or do you look at the environment? And uh, what all kind of aspects do you include when you're uh, world building? I go deep enough so that if somebody asks me a question about it, that I can generally answer it. I have the potential to get obsessed about research, so I try to pull back at a certain point where I'm like, wait a second, I'm really spending way too much time uh, figuring this out. Um, So I try to keep that balance between research, science or otherwise, and writing the story and not getting uh, too bogged down in making sure I have every single detail absolutely perfect. I know there's flaws um, in the storyline and that somebody's going to catch it and I'll be like, yep, there it is. You caught it. And (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Um, I knew it was going to come up. And part of that just has to do with learning as you're writing too. And I didn't discover some things until book two and three. Um, I'm like, oh shit, that's how that works. Son of a bitch. And that's not a great place to start, but that's how it ended up working where I knew that this was, I knew the magic and it was going to work in a certain way. And I was, I was doing a lot of research on Khan Academy and learning about quantum physics and string theory. And it still boggles my mind, but it really wasn't until I got into the storylines of the second two books where I'm like, Oh, that's how that works. So there is a discovery process that leads inherently to some mistakes that are going to be in there. I try to try to fix everything, but um, I'm, I'm sure I missed something. So I welcome somebody saying, <laughs> you know, you messed that up. And I'll be like, yeah, you got me. Are you reading reviews on Amazon yet or Goodreads? Um, no, I'm not. Okay. I know um, one of my friends texted my husband and said, hey, did you know that there's an Amazon review already up on 
on Tina's book and I'm like, okay, I don't want to go there because I'm working on book two and I don't want to get depressed or like take anything personally because it's whatever people, I mean, it's, it's somebody's opinion. It's valid. It's wonderful. It's what they think and, you know, more power to them. But, um, my husband says, Oh no, it's a totally fine review. They just, you know, they, they just wanted you to have a glossary. And I was like, Oh, the glossary. God damn it. And I knew this was going to, I I knew this was going to come up and I swear I'm going to write an essay about this for somebody about, there's a couple of good essays out there about glossaries. N.K. Jemison has a great one. And I think Brian Stavely also has a good sort of piece on, on glossaries. And, um, and it's, I think glossaries are like Brussels sprouts. People either love them or hate them. Nobody's in the middle going, you know, eh, Brussels sprouts, okay. You know, it's like, eh, glossaries, I can take them or leave them. Um, I have strong feelings. I know other people have strong feelings about glossaries. So, But my book doesn't have glossaries, and it has uh, uh, several foreign words in it. And um, uh, I explain I see a map. I explain Is there them. a map in there? Or? And no maps either. How do I know where people are, <laughs> Tina LeCount Myers, <laughs> exactly. without my map? Well, you know... <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll, I'm going to get contentious with this, I guess. Okay. It's early. I haven't had enough co- That's I okay. had coffee. We so like I contentious. contentious. Um, maps and, and glossaries have a very specific role. And I think they the origin is from Lord of the Rings. And so there's this venerable history of it, of what Tolkien did with that. And subsequent writers um, were inspired by, incorporated. And there's a certain beauty to it. And I also want somebody's imagination to do what it wants to do. Um, and sometimes when I'm reading books and I'm given these materials, I'm insulted by them because it's telling me that I'm not smart enough to figure out in my own imagination where something is and and allow me to have that separate experience without everything being given to me. And I and I was having a discussion with another writer friend of mine about uh, glossaries and maps. And there is this sort of I'm not, and I'm not sure how quite to say this, but. It feels like um, a very Western-oriented concept that we should own the language immediately, that there should be no moment of discomfort about reading uh, a piece of work so that you should immediately know. And I agree that, you know, terms should be defined and you should have access to them. But just sitting with something and letting that discomfort that you don't quite know what that means just yet, but maybe you will find out and discover the sense that you have to be spoon fed everything in order to have a comfortable experience within a book. I kind of object to, I, I wasn't con, there's a little bit of consciously objecting to it in that I didn't put the glossary in there, not because I want people to be uncomfortable, but because I want them to have their own imaginative experience. And if, they define Yami Antun as, you know, a uh, scary tall creature. That's their own, you know, like, okay, that's what they are to them. But I object to this need to always be spoon fed. And that also goes a little bit with maps. And the arguments can be made that glossaries and maps take you out of that experience because you're flipping back to see something. So I'm not quite sure how I want to. I have strong feelings. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I tend not to look at maps myself. Um, I kind of kind of look at them briefly, mm-hmm. and then I'll go, "Oh, that's a nice map." <laughs> then I don't give a shit anymore, and then I just read the book. That's me personally. So I mean, I that- love cartography. I love maps. I think they're beautiful. And I also didn't really want one and I didn't want a glossary. So it, it's going to work. It's going to work against me. It has is, has been working against me. People are, I think, um, to go back to reviews. Um, I'm sure there's a number of strong moments of castigation for my lack of glossary and map. But let me just right. let me just say that I didn't find that a problem at all. I didn't think you needed a glossary. Okay. Yeah, I was reading through it and you I think your world building was flawless and um, every term was easy to unpack and you pretty much explained what the term was when you brought out the term with it so i think it i don't think it's an issue at all personally so <clears throat> thank you I, that that is one review i'm gonna hold in my heart <laughs> to, to ward off all the others yeah. that may come down the road saying you didn't have a glossary and then, and then remember i don't give a shit about maps that's another one <laughs> thank, you, thank you phil because you and i are going to be like yeah, eh, you know, eh, it's there. No, that's an intriguing topic, though. We haven't really covered the um, the importance or necessity of maps 
or glossaries on the show before, and that's an intriguing concept. And I think we'll dive a little bit more into that into our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction readers and writers. Maybe ask about that as well. I think that's a Abs- that's a good point yeah. to consider. I mean, it, it's 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 part it's it's part of the canon. You know, it's it's def- Tolkien defines it, and it's it's also it, for me it feels a little bit like a colonial experience as well. Hopefully, it's an interesting topic to other people. Um, I'd be curious to see what they say. Well, it's a hard thing when you're writing outside of the kind of medieval fantasy style based in Europe kind of setting, uh, because that's always going to be something that people have to consider when they're reading about uh, a fantasy story that's based in a a non-Eurocentric setting. So right. you have you have to deal with those kind of things. And I know from my experience, like reading Cameron Hurley, like I really mm-hmm. love her world building and the way she kind of almost uh, reinvents everything. And it can be a little uh, difficult at first. But I think once you kind of get into it, it, it feels like a completely unique reading experience than what you would normally get. So Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I yeah. I 100% agree, and 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 NK Jemison also has that, you know, in her worlds, like there are very complicated things that she's discussing, and yeah, you do need to explain it, um, and and it and sometimes it is helpful because it is so far removed from what we would consider recognizable. So I think there's a role for it, and there's going to be there's so many amazing non-Western Eurocentric fantasy uh, world-building books out there now that. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to watch in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, what the sort of new, new expectations are in those, like how we understand the world, how, how that whole construct is going to change the more diversity and the more different storylines that get brought into this canon. Let's talk a little bit about your path to publication. Uh, we have a lot of writers who listen to the show, and I'm sure some are intrigued to hear about your first month being as challenging as it is, being a, a debut novelist. I'm sure many have a, a dream of being a debut novelist as well. Tell us a little bit about how you got maybe hooked up with Agent Mark Gottlieb and how uh, The Song of All found publication with Nightshade. This, like, this always kind of feels like a guilty um, confession that I don't have like a hundred rejection letters, you know, pinned up against my wall or a thousand. The process was um, very, uh, in my opinion, very quick, although it depends on how you understand things. So basically I committed to the whole backstory is I had been writing for a bunch of years during NaNoWriMo, um, which I love because it's just pure imagination. And then I would just, you know, for about 10 years, I was just sticking stories in a drawer. And I was working with a, a life coach to kind of figure out my new profession. I was between professions and we were working together. We had this great plan to come. We had come up with I was going to go back into education. It was going to be amazing. And I was about to push the button on taking an accreditation course. And I heard this voice that says, finish the novel. And so I called him up and I said, dude, you know, that plan that we were working on, that sounded really great. He's, I said, well, I'm getting this voice that's saying, finish the novel. And he says, well, how does that make you feel? And I said, I want to vomit. And he says, great, dude, do that. And I'm like, what vomit? And he's like, no, 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 finish the novel. Finish vomit the novel. Everywhere. So yeah, everywhere. Um, so, so that's what I did in 2013. Um, it was like January, February, 2013. I'm like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to finish this novel. I knew exactly which one it was in the drawer. And um, over 2013, 2014, I finished the novel, worked with editors, worked, did all kinds of workshopping with it, and then started querying in 2015. And I had, you know, I don't know, I had, I had some nice, I had some nice requests right up front. And then it was like, thanks, but not really right for me. So I had maybe 10 of those when I met Mark at the San Francisco Writers Conference. And it was during one of those um, speed dating sessions. And I don't know if you all have been to those, but it's it's intense. It's you have three minutes to pitch your story. There are hundreds of people in the room. Everybody is talking a mile a minute and you're trying to remember what your storyline is. And they're ringing this bell at every three minutes. But it's it's not time. It's not timed properly. So. Halfway through my pitch to Mark, who was the last one I pitched, the bell rang and I'm like, totally threw me off. And so Mark was like, yeah, just, just keep going. Just keep going, you know, consummate professional. And so I, I finished and he's like, great. I'd like to read that. And I'm like looking at him going, okay, how, how, how many pages do you want? He's like, I want the whole thing. I'm like, holy shit. Okay. Um, and a week and a half, two weeks later, he signed me and he's amazing. 
And I think by May, he'd sold it. All three books to Nightshade Books, Jeremy Lassen and Corey Allen at Nightshade. Yeah, so it went really fast from basically 2013 to 2016. Um, Which in the publishing world is like a blink of an eye. <laughs> it's a blink of an eye, yeah. It really, it really is when you, you, you know, I know lots of writers and, you know, they kind of look at me and there's like this, like, there's a side eye, a stink eye that I get like, <laughs> fuck, man, you like, you got this, like, you didn't even work for it, girl. You didn't even, you didn't cry for it. You didn't, I'm like, I'm paying for it now, man. I'm paying with learning curves now. So, um, it's all, it's all evening out, but yeah, so it was very quick and it does happen. I, it, so I feel guilty. I feel guilty. I feel really guilty. New novelist, writer's guilt. The struggle is real. And it just adds, struggle is real, and it just adds to imposter syndrome. You know, you're like, oh, I don't really deserve to be here. I don't, you know, I was just in a panel about imposter syndrome, so it's stuck in my head. Somebody called them mind weasels, you know, that are running around your head when you're writing, particularly, you know, when you're editing, you're like, oh, this is great. Oh, the next day you look at, oh, shit. You know, no, okay, that sentence is pretty good, but... Um, and Mark is, Mark is an amazing agent and I feel incredibly blessed and lucky. Um, I love working with him and I loved working with Nightshade, um, with Jeremy and Corey. And it's been a really good experience, learning experience for sure. What's been maybe the biggest uh, nugget of information or wisdom Mark has given you as a debut novelist here as the book is released? Quite honestly, get a publicist, hire a publicist. It's, it's the truth of the way publishing is now. And that's not, that's not to in any way, you know, denigrate my publisher or my publicist that said they're just that they're spread thin. They have an ROI that they need to make. Um, this is not the days of the big publishing houses are like, you know, going to send you out on a book tour and support you. So hiring a publicist to access avenues that I wouldn't have access to. So my publicist is. I've been able to write for Mary Robin at Cole. I've been able to write for Tor. I've been able to write for Literary Hub. You know, so that that advice was invaluable. And it it's also um, an investment that I'm making in myself as a debut author. I'm only a debut author once or twice, depending if I <laughs> jump genres, which, you know, could happen. I don't know. Um, stranger things have happened and it's a good investment, I think. And it was for me and I'm able to do that. But it's challenging having enough hits to get your, it used to be, you could just have the New York Times or Locust Magazine, um, depending on what, what field you're in, you write a review and that was enough to get the needle moving on buzz. Now it's like, you know, it's a thousand, it's 1500, 2000 hits before people will take notice of something new. And there's so, and there's so much competing information all around you. I mean, you're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, you know, any number of of social media and so a lot of input how do you make yourself that blip that people are going to notice can probably be overwhelming it's a, yeah. it's overwhelming yeah just i yeah i have no idea really how it works yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this amazing black box that's just kind of working right now there's a lot of positives and negatives about being a writer these days i think i think in a lot of ways we have a bigger wealth of information to contact people and to reach an audience that probably wouldn't have been reached otherwise but on the other hand everybody else has that also so in some ways uh, people say you're not really competing against other writers, but you, you kind of are sometimes because I've, I've encountered a lot of people that say, oh, I want to get this new book, but I already have 10,000 other books I want to read. And then yeah. you're getting your very limited uh, shelf space in, in a way. So, yeah. And time, you, you know, it's like it, my reading time has been cut down dramatically. So you know, I have I have that to be red pile that's, you know, growing and growing. And there's so many amazing books in there. And I I'm looking at it wistfully. Um, and in, in some in some of them, I'm, I'm also envious, too, just because they're beautiful. And I wish I had written that. But um, you, there is this there is a competition. <laughs> there is a competition. But mostly what I found, at least amongst other authors, is that there's a camaraderie and just a general willingness to share and be in a community. And I'm not sure if that's just particular to sci-fi fantasy speculative fiction world, but I've definitely felt 
um, very encouraged and, and that's a nice feeling when you're, when you're a debut author to have that sort of community to be a part of. Talking about your actual writing process, you, I think you mentioned, uh, on one of the interviews I read that you have kind of a set schedule that you, or set goal you try to meet every day. I'm actually, I'm actually a binge purge writer. I'll write, I'll take a month and I'll write 50,000 words, 30,000, 50,000 words. And then I'll take a month off and, and work on something else. And then I'll go back to it. So I don't, I'm not one of those people who can actually be in a chair every single day writing something new. I do it for editing. So those are two different places for me. If I'm editing, I will be in the chair every single day, making a word count, making a chapter count. Um, but if I'm creating something new, I really like to be kind of just... I want to binge on it because uh, there's it's it, it's wonderful. It's delicious to be in your imagination for however long and the dishes don't exist anymore. And, you know, the house goes to hell. I am an organized person, but that's the one place where I'm not I'm not that dedicated person who sits down every day. And, and some, you know, I'm amazed people can do that because it's be, it's like, wow, you can do that every day. I need a break in between there. I need to do some art. I need to go take care of life. So I'm I'm organized, but not that organized. <laughs> I'm a I am a pantser who wishes they were a plotter. Ah. I really wish that. Probably now with book two and book three coming along, maybe a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why the fuck did I not <laughs> have a timeline from the beginning? What the fuck was I thinking? And why don't I have a map? Son of a bitch. Why was no? Back to the map. Draw um, the map. Draw the map. If anybody, like, whether you put it in your book or use it, draw the fucking map. That's my word of wisdom. So you don't have to figure out, like, oh, how does that work in book three? So, yeah. No. Word to the wise. You learn things. Yeah. <laughs> Word to the wise. Try the map. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we'll dive into our 30-second geek out here. It's a fun little game we like to play here on the show with our guests. We like to uh, just dive into little subjects here for just a split moment of time, let you divulge on them for only 30 seconds, and then after 30 seconds, your time will be up, and you will have no time to discuss the topic any further. So I've got my timer right here, right in front of me, so I can make sure that uh, you don't go any longer so let's start the 30 second geek out are you ready okay (laughs) okay you have 30 seconds to talk about this topic the first topic is surfing you have 30 seconds to geek out about this topic surfing is the most amazing sport total zen moment out in the water you there's no two waves that are ever going to be the same in this world and if you catch one you are golden i've only surfed up to 15 feet and I've been held down for a five-wave set that I thought was going to kill me. Uh, my favorite place is... Oh. Sorry. All right. We'll go for uh, 30 seconds here on the next topic. That was cool to learn about surfing. I, I don't think we've had too many surfers here on the show. Um, lots of sword fighters, lots of LARPers, but uh, first surfer, I think, that we've had um, here on the program. Um, so let's go into the next topic. Uh, Tina LeCount Myers, author of The Song of All, you have 30 seconds to geek out on the topic of... Glue stick art and go. Oh, glue stick art. Okay. I am a collage artist and I, I just pull scraps of paper images um, from magazines and it's all about working with my unconscious and what my unconscious brings to the surface. And so I use that glue stick to create new images, multimedia images. Sometimes I paint, um, but it's about getting at the heart of my unconscious and seeing what. Sorry, that's all you have, all the time you have <laughs> oh, to talk about. It sounds okay. therapeutic, though. That now, sounds fun. It, it is. <laughs> Ooh, I it's, want very to ther- it's very therapeutic. Come come visit, or I'll come visit, and we'll have a glue stick session. It's really good. All right. Okay, next topic is something I have no fucking clue about, so I'm very interested in what you're going to say. Uh, next topic is urban chicken farming. 30 seconds, go. <laughs> urban chicken farming. Um, in the city of San Francisco, you can have four four legged animals, uh, which we interpreted as being able to have chickens. Um, city is okay with that. No roosters. So we, we had four chickens for about seven years and, um, they free ranged between my yard and my neighbor's yard. And they would wake us up at about six o'clock in the morning because one of the hens was turning into a rooster. She started to take on male characteristics. And so she would start to crow at 630 in the morning. Oh, perfect. 
<laughs> chickens, chickens are allowed in San Francisco. Good to know. All right. And uh, uh, so we'll go with the next topic here on the 30-second gig out. Just a couple more, and then we'll wrap up our conversation here. Uh, next topic, you have 30 seconds to talk about Tolstoy, Pushkin, and Dostoevsky. And go. <laughs> 30 seconds to talk about, talk about Russian epic writers. Yes, please. Um, Time is running out. Oh, War and Peace. Uh, these are epic, gut-wrenching, dramatic, melodramatic. They're beautiful and long and... They define the Russian spirit, and they're gorgeous, if anybody's not read them. They're gorgeous, and, and I'm in awe of what they did. And No maps. Time is up. No maps. Lots of names. <laughs> Lots of names. No maps. Um, although they do give the genealogy in the beginning, which I'm like, I don't fucking care. I'll figure <laughs> it out when I'm reading it, because that's who I am. Um, but uh, Crime and Punishment is my favorite book. Um, it, you know, you have to wait until he, he brains her with the axe, but after that, it really picks up. Oh, so once spoiler. you get the braining with him, yeah, <laughs> sorry, the uh, book's been out for, you know, a hundred years. So I've, spoiler. <laughs> somebody knows about the axe braining, but that's about, you know, 200 pages into the book. So you have to have some commitment up until that point. Someone's going to be pissed about that spoiler. Just so you know. I know. Yeah, so we're going to hear about it on Twitter. You will. I will. You can just point them my way, yep. and, and we'll have a discussion about glossaries as well, <laughs> and it'll be fine. And last topic, <clears throat> here on the 30-second geek out with debut novelist uh, Tina LeCount Myers, author of The Song of All. Uh, last topic here, you have 30 seconds to geek out on Kitos Aiti, You Were Right, and go. Oh, my God. Kitos Aiti. Um, that's, a, that's a thank you to my mother. Um, my mother and father had my astrological chart done when I was born, and it said that I was going to be a writer. So throughout my life, my mother always asked me or then suggested when she didn't like my choices that I should be a writer. And I absolutely said I would never be a writer. And she was right because she's always fucking right. Um, sadly, she's no longer with us in the world. My mother was always right, and she was right about this, too. But I, I don't have to hear it. From her, I don't have to hear. I, I don't have to hear. I told you so. So I mean, I do because she talks to me in my dreams, but um, I don't have to hear it out every day. So thank you for asking that question. The song of all is available now on Amazon. You can find a link in the show notes. Tila Count Myers, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Been a blast to uh, talk about the book, and uh, best of luck to you on all your writerly endeavors. You've got tons of writers conferences coming out. Folks can follow along with you uh, at your website. Yes. Twitter, Instagram, those are my big ones that I'm on, okay. mostly. Facebook, yeah. All the big ones all over the place. So folks want to keep tabs on you. And uh, your forthcoming uh, novels, I, looks like on your website you had the titles for book two and book three uh, there. Are those the titles that uh, the publishers are going to stick with there? Yeah, I'm, I've been very fortunate that they decided to go with my, the titles that I had originally chosen. So um, Dreams of the Dark Sky, book two, uh, potentially February 2019, and then the Northern Ones, potentially February uh, 2020, based upon whatever the publisher's schedule is. You mentioned a novella before. Any other chance of any other related works that we might see from you? Um the I do have the prequel in mind. I haven't addressed it yet with my editors, but um, and there's a couple of side novellas uh, since I have some folks who are kind of angry that there's nothing between now and the next book. So I'm hoping to get something to bridge between the two books that is not a spoiler, but also is in that world. So those are potentials, nothing solid, but um, I'm hoping to be able to do that. Well, we are at thegrimtidingspodcast.com. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. For only $3 a month, you can submit questions, find out who's coming on the show, and more. And for $5 a month, you can get a Philip Overby Splatter Elf short story every single month delivered to your inbox. How is the Splatter Elf universe going, Philip Overby? Yeah, it's pretty good. Still killing lots of characters and mm-hmm. lots of blood, splattering shit yep. everywhere. And good times. Good times. Uh, I'm actually uh, working on a novel now, so I would like to do a cover reveal for that novel Ooh. once I have got some good progress on it. Uh, probably for Patreon people, so if you want to see the cover before everybody else, ah, come on, Patreon! <laughs> 
<laughs> Come on down to Patreon. Patreon.com. Come on down. Patreon. The Grim Tidings Podcast. And again, uh, you can always drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers on Facebook. Uh, up to almost 5,000 members. We started that son of a bitch back in 2014, and people just keep showing up. Daily conversations about books and writing and all sorts of fun things, so be sure to drop by and join me and Phil for the conversation on a daily basis. And if you like the show, please drop by iTunes, leave us a rating and a review, please. That helps us show up uh, higher in the ratings and uh, expose more cool authors that we have on the show and uh, spread the good word about the cool books that we have here. So we appreciate ratings and reviews, and we actually got our first one-star rating, Phil. We got a hater out there. So. Yeah, I like that. But yeah, I like a I like a good one star. Me too. Um, makes me keeps, feel makes me feel like uh keeps like you I humble. Did something right, right? Yeah, <laughs> like I, I pissed off somebody. I like pissing off people, so it's actually a good thing. You did it. You did it. You yeah. you you've arrived. You pissed somebody off. It pisses me off every time we do a podcast. So, thanks for joining us here on the Grim Tidings Podcast. As always, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll talk to you next time. On behalf of Philip Overby and myself, thanks for joining us. Take care. So long. Sayonara. Bye-bye. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings podcast, then you'll love Grim Dark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for Grim Dark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee-deep in grit. Log on to GrimDarkMagazine.com. I'm Team LeCount Myers, and I'm reading from my debut fantasy novel, The Song of All, and I'll be reading Chapter 8, which will have no spoilers in it, but it does feature the immortal warriors for the first time. So, without further ado, Chapter 8. Joran prepared to answer the summoning. The Taistelian warrior had journeyed as long and as far as any, but one task remained. He sat quietly in his modest quarters, listening to The Song of All. It flowed through him, though no sound passed his lips. He could no more stop it than he could his heart. The Yakmemianthun had survived because of the Song of All, and it reminded him of how much suffering they had endured. Jorn stood and moved to the slit of a window. He drew back the leather flap covering it against the gusts of snow and wind. Looking out upon the tall trees, he watched the snow fall upon the branches and felt the branches burden as his own. Goasonasti, their life star, whose comings and goings measured the length of their existence, was on its descent. Soon it would be gone, as would he. Suddenly, pain twisted him, as if his flesh sought to pull away from his bone. He leaned against the wall, gasping. The intervals between these episodes drew closer. He could postpone his journey no longer, and yet he hated to leave. Outside, he would only have his voice to sustain him. Jorn withdrew from the window, letting the leather cover fall back into place. He gathered the supplies he needed for his last days, a small amount of food, his furs to protect him, and his miecki. Guavasanasti had risen and set more than 12 times since his blade had been used in battle. More than 100 seasons of snow, he thought. As he hefted his blade, so much time had passed. At the gate, Jorn made his farewells. His loved ones shed tears and held him close while his compatriots clasped his hand, but said nothing. Nothing remained to be said. The cycle must be completed. Jorn walked through the gates and looked back at his home. All that remained for him lay outside. He patted the reindeer beside him. Come, old friend, one last journey. The animal took up its burden, and together the warrior and his steed rode into the forest. As he traveled west, he wished he could feel the sun's warming rays on his back, but he would not live to see another summer. His time had come in the season of snow. In some ways, he thought it a fitting end that it should go inside with the darkness, it put him in the right frame of mind. He thought of the next part of the song. Instinctively, the refrain came to him. I return to my origin to share my life force. My life ends so that a new life begins and another transforms. I leave as I entered and the whole is unchanged. He wondered what it would feel like when he finally gave voice to those words. Would he feel himself a part of the child to be born or the Niyadash becoming Almai, would any vestige of his essence continue in the world? He thought back to when he had become Almai. He remembered feeling frightened. The Boaris, the old one, who had joined him at their origin, had tenderly reassured him. I do not know what awaits me, the old one had said, but what awaits you is both sacred and profound. Today, your time ends as a Niyadash. Tomorrow, you will give birth to not only a child, but to your new self. 
you're asked to remember all you've experienced thus far so that as Almai and Leto Boaris, you understand the needs, hopes, and destinies of all. But Jorn had forgotten much of what life had been like before he had become Taistelian. He'd spent so much time at war and in battles, he worried his own words would not be adequate for the Niadash who awaited him. At the edge of a clearing, he stopped and tethered his binna to a tree. The reindeer nibbled at the lichen growing upon the bark and ignored him as he walked out into the vast expanse of white. Were anyone to happen upon this place, they would not know the tragedy that had occurred here. No rock cairn marked the great battle waged upon this spot. There had been so many battles that the memory of both Olmosh and Yatmebianthun had collapsed them into a single, endless war. But now, as Jorn stood upon the field surrounded by the hushed snowfall, it almost felt as if the war had never happened. Long ago, when the Olmosh had first walked out of the eastern sunrise, the Yatmebianthun had looked into their large, wide-set eyes and seen innocence. Their kind taught the newcomers to survive in the world, how to live in the ice and snow and find light in the endless darkness. But over generations, the almost, like children, grew quarrelsome and resentful of guidance. They rebelled and denounced all the Yapmemianthun as abominations and claimed the gods as theirs alone, even as they slaughtered Nyadash and Biabmoyadni along with their charges. Jorn's hand moved to his Mieki. Feeling the hilt's contour, he remembered that time and the blood that later dripped down its long blade. In those distant days, when the Almai answered the elder's call to take up arms, he had stood at the edge of many clearings such as this one and readied himself to meet his end. He had run onto the fields determined to take the lives of as many Olmosh as he could and had screamed with vengeance as his comrades fell beside him. But time and again, Jorn had lived to fight another day until the elders came forward and spoke of a different way. It is the gift of the gods, they said. The song of all could hide them, while the Yatmeyantun had always sung to pass on their knowledge, to commune with their gods, to honor those they loved. It was only when the elders had listened deep within themselves as they sang that they understood what was truly possible. We are one, the elders had said, their faces expectant as they explained. Jorn had scoffed, but he had slowed his breath and quieted his heart as the elders had instructed. Then, with a rush like cascading water, songs too numerous to count had flooded into him, threatening to drown out his own. Mercifully, they had coalesced, and Jorn had understood what the elders had meant when they said they were all one. He had glimpsed the veil that could shield them. The Olmosh would never be able to single out the Yatmeyandun song. Then the elders said that their kind had a choice. They could continue to wage war, or they could withdraw and make a new life for themselves. And as war-weary as they were, the Yatmeyandun were willing to listen. Their kind chose a new life. They vanished before the eyes of their enemies who celebrated, believing a scourge had been wiped cleanly from their world. But the Yatmemianthun had remained deep in the song of all. They stood in front of the Olmosh unseen. To the Yatmemianthun, the Olmosh became like a distant shore, visible but unreachable. Olmosh and Yatmemianthun could live in the same world and yet never have to touch. This gift of the gods had saved the Yatmemianthun, but at the time, Jorn could not accept it. With bloodlust running through his veins, he said it was a weak-willed trick, a sign of cowardice. Many Taistelian agreed. They wanted to fight, to teach the upstart Olmosh their place in the world. For almost 100 seasons of snow, discord threatened the peace of their kind as rogue warriors continued to hunt and kill the Olmosh without sanction. Jorn had been one of those rogues who refused to fade into the midst of obscurity when the dead needed to be avenged. And while Jorn and his comrades had forsworn peace... It did not mean they did not use the Song of All to their advantage. Early on, they had discovered it was possible to shift back and forth between the two realms. At first, only a few had the skill to make the shift. For most, the challenge of bringing their focus back to the All proved disastrous. Those who fought in battle were often too intent on the fight and were unable to hear the song. For other Taistelian, when they tried to escape by finding the song, they often forgot to wield their swords, finding death in place of the other realm's safety. The archers, loosing arrows from the shadows, found it easier. They were already focused on hiding. But in the end, the archers did not prevail among the ranks of the rogue warriors. A Taistelian, who elected to remain outside the song, could not choose to hide in the shadows and cast arrows. For these Taistelian, the sword or the knife became the weapon of a true warrior, and the arrow the sign of a coward. Jorn was never.